Hello, I am Dominic Rio, and welcome to the Elucidations Podcast. Today's guest, Jessica Tizard, overviews the concept of weakness of the will within the context of morality. Are people immoral because they are unaware of the ethical course of action, or do our desires play a bigger role? Jessica argues that a weakness of one's willpower arises out of an interplay between reason and desire. We intuitively have a sense of what we should and should not do, but sometimes our desires can dominate us. Yet, if we are always controlled by desire, wouldn't that mean that we lack the freedom to choose? Does one's freedom lie within one's ability to exercise the power of one's will? Stay tuned to see how Jessica addresses these issues and more on the Elucidations Podcast. To elucidations. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Long. With us today is Jessica Tizard, Assistant Research Professor of Philosophy at the University of Connecticut Stores. And she is here to discuss weakness of the will. Jessica Tizard, welcome. Thank you for having me. So, weakness of the will is a classic philosophical topic slash puzzle that's really fun to think about. And I would say it corresponds more or less to what we talk about in everyday contexts as like, well, this is a situation where I need to have a lot of willpower. I have to, uh, you know, really, I have to really be strong-willed in this situation and try to do the right thing. One kind of simple example of that might be, I'm thinking about, do I want to go to a party tonight? And on the one hand, it'll be a lot of fun and I get to hang out with my friends, maybe even engage in some libations. But... You know, I have a big job interview coming up tomorrow morning. Or I have a big exam coming up tomorrow morning. And in some sense, it would be irresponsible for me to go to this party tonight. And I kind of like, no, I shouldn't, but I do it anyway. And that's like, a, we talk about that as a lack of willpower. Is that a good way to think of the phenomenon of weakness of the will? Like these situations where you need a lot of willpower, but then it doesn't work out and you sort of, you know that X is the right thing to do, but instead you do Y? Right, yeah. I think that is a good way to think about it. I should say up front that as a philosopher, my work is mainly on the philosopher Immanuel Kant. Um, so when I'm thinking about weakness of will in my job as a philosopher, I'm thinking about how to properly interpret Kant's understanding of what weakness of will is. And when he introduces the phenomenon, he quotes St. Paul in Romans as saying, what I would do that I do not do. So that is, you know, the basic idea. I want to do something. I think there's a principled reason to do that. I view that thing as the right thing to do. And yet I do not do it, right? So, and I think, yeah, as you said, that seems to capture our everyday sense of weakness of will when we talk about it. What about cases involving bravery or like overcoming your fear? So, you know, maybe I'm on the street and I see someone attacking somebody else and I know that what I should do is defend them, but like I'm scared, you know, I'm scared I'm going to get hurt. So this is like some sort of moment of truth for me where being doing the courageous thing would be overcoming my fear and defending the person who's getting attacked. And let's say that I don't do that. Let's say that I chicken out and I don't help the person and I'm really ashamed of it afterwards. Is that also a case of weakness of the will? Um, yeah, I think it makes sense to think of it as yet another case of weakness of the will. And I like that you use the term afterwards, right? I was ashamed afterwards. I think 
I think on Kant's view, um, and I think this should be our general view, it's a much broader phenomenon than the, the really puzzling type of case where even in the moment I know that I'm doing something wrong and acting as I do. So I think we can apply the term weakness to any case where I act against my established moral commitments or principles and then come to regret my action once I have reflective clarity on the fact that I did act against those principles, right? So in the kind of, so it could be that that reflective clarity doesn't come until later, right? So maybe in the, in the example you're talking about now, you know, I think I am not obligated to intervene in this situation, right? I'm not acting badly and failing to help this person. But then later I'll realize I sort of made that judgment on the basis of my fear, and that it wasn't a good reason to make that judgment. Um, I had no real ground to think. I was just motivated by my fear. And so I exhibited weakness there. Um, and yeah, so once I achieve clarity, I'll regret what I did and see that it was weak, as you said. Is there any kind of statute of limitations on this? Like, what about regretting a major life decision from 25 years ago? Like, ah, oh, you know, I should have gone to law school and I would have been a great lawyer and et cetera, et cetera, but I didn't do that and now I'm kicking myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so would any case involving, like, major regrets, even over a long period, also maybe fall under this category? Um, yeah, I don't – I haven't been asked that question before. I think it doesn't seem obvious to me that there needs to be some kind of temporal limit. I would say that it's important for Kant to think of this as a moral phenomenon. So weakness doesn't extend to sort of prudential failures where I think, you know, it would have been, I would have been happier if I had gone to law school because um, I would have made more money or I would have had a more stable job or it would have made it easy, you know. Um, So if those are the kinds of considerations, the kinds of considerations that factor into, you know, my happiness, right? Am I able to meet the desires that I have? That's not an example of the kind of weakness that he's talking about and that I work on and that we're here to talk about today. So I think it's important to recognize that, yeah, for Kant, it is a moral phenomenon. Even if it doesn't have temporal limits, it does have some kind of limit. Okay, yeah, that's a nice point, right? So maybe a better example of this would be, like, I regret years and years and years ago when I was engaged, I should have been nicer to my fiancé or something like that. Right, yeah, where where that's understood as... Um, I should have been nicer to her, not because it would have made her happier, but because I sort of owed her that um, insofar as she's another moral being. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Just wondering, where do the sort of moral principles that Khan is talking about come from? Is it because what well, seems like in the bravery example, um, you may sort of aspire to be like the brave person. You take it as what you should be doing as being brave and like helping this person, but you fail to do so. So is the principle there coming from like society or is it some like broader um, within like a broader Kantian moral framework that we have to think about those principles? Um, Right. So is the question, can some of these principles sort of be dictated by society in a way that sort of could vary from one society to another? Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I think there is room for that on Kant. And maybe one good distinction to introduce now um, that's, I think, very related to the phenomenon of weakness um, and also has, like, general application beyond just, like, Kant scholarship is he distinguishes between what he calls perfect duties and imperfect duties. And perfect duties are things like, you know, not to kill, not to steal. And I think here 
there are no exceptions. And so on his view, there is no room for sort of latitude across cultures or societies. Um, if something can be defined as killing, it's wrong. But then with imperfect duties, right, there's sort of general ends that we're supposed to have. Things like being good to my parents or being beneficent to others, taking the happiness of others into account, you know, developing my talents, things like this. And so it's very unclear exactly how to do those things, right? There's, um, he calls them wide duties in the sense that they don't specify particular actions that we're supposed to do. And I think in the sphere of these kinds of duties that, well, first, there can be differences across cultures because it's, there's no exact blueprint on how to you know, discharge these duties or fulfill them. But then also, I think this is where weakness can creep in because um, it's often unclear to us you know, how exactly to go about um, fulfilling these duties, especially in difficult situations where we, it might seem as though two imperfect duties are conflicting with one another. And it's sort of in not knowing how to navigate these difficult waters that human weakness can arise. So I think courage is a good example because um, insofar as it's up to you to intervene and perhaps save the life of another person, it can be unclear is it up to me to do this, right? I think it's possible that different societies might, you know, understand the obligation that I'm under in that case differently because we're talking about imperfect or wide duties. So would it be fair to say that, like, a perfect duty might be something, like, like it's just a hard no. Like, exactly. don't ever kill anybody. It doesn't even matter what the situation is. Mm-hmm. Whereas an imperfect duty, maybe it's just, maybe what we want to say is that there's context to take into account. And particulars of the context can affect whether uh, what exactly the duty is or something like that. Yeah, I think that's a good way to look at it. Um, yeah, it's much more context dependent. There are just a lot more factors to consider in deciding what to do um, with respect to a given duty. And like I said, conflicts can arise, right? And this is what makes context important. You know, what kind of other duties are in play here? What else do I have to think about? What other obligations are weighing on me? And how do I sort of prioritize them? Um, This is a big, important question. Whereas, yes, with perfect duties, there is no context in which my duty not to kill could be, you know, lifted because of some other duty that I have. So um, with the example of someone who sort of thinks to herself that she should be doing her homework but sort of goes out to a party instead, so is that sort of a failure to take into account these sort of like contextual um, elements? Yeah, so I'm just wondering like in that case what sort of goes wrong in the law. Yeah. Right, yeah, I think the party case is a really good example to think about. And for Kant, I think we don't even need to necessarily specify the added condition that I have something to do tomorrow that's important and I should be thinking about that. I think for Kant, we can see duties conflicting, moral duties conflicting in just the idea of going to a big party because he thinks there's two sort of things at work here, right? So I should say that Kant just historically as a person loved parties and thought they were extremely (laughs) important. Um, He gets a bad rap. People think he was this really boring guy who never did anything and sort of lived his life um, in this regimented order and did the same thing at the same time every day. But it's very true that he just, he loved parties. He thought they were super important. And he, he thinks that there's a moral dimension to them. So the kind of company that I enjoy in a party, you know, the coming together with lots of different people 
and being able to converse freely um, over many hours in sort of a relaxed situation is a moral good for him. Um, he thinks we you know, have sort of a wide duty to pursue these kinds of situations. But then he also worries that parties are an invitation to excess, right? So he imagines being invited to a large banquet and knowing that there's going to be a lot of food and drink there, rich food and like copious amounts of alcohol. And the question is, you know, how do I, how do I sort of navigate these two things? Um, and I think there's room for genuinely not knowing, you know, what the right answer is for him. So I'll just say as one last aside, um, when he introduces these kinds of examples in the Metaphysics of Morals, which is one of his major ethical works, he asks what he calls casuistical questions like, so on our topic, he says, for once, I'm quoting here, can one at least justify, if not eulogize, a use of wine bordering on intoxication since it enlivens the company's conversation and in so doing makes them speak more freely? Um, and I think he's asking this as a genuine question. So the thought is, can I you know, use imbibing as a means to this moral end of socializing? Or am I sort of transgressing against a duty to myself to sort of be temperate and not misuse, you know, my capacity for eating and drinking in a way that is harmful to me. Where is the limit on this kind of case? I think it's not knowing that leads to problems. So intuitively to me, this version of the situation that we're imagining sounds a bit more maybe like a dilemma than a case of being weak-willed because you have sort of these two competing considerations and you can't choose between them. Mm -hmm. And the way I usually think of a case of weakness of the will is you did choose A rather than B, and yet you did B instead. Um, and uh, so I was, I was just curious about whether, uh, is this indicative of like an approach that you think we should take to weakness of the will? Like, like we should think of it like on the lines of a moral dilemma? Um, yeah, so I think... In talking about the sort of traditional case of weakness of will, a big part of of what takes center stage is what philosophers would call the phenomenology of the experience. So, right, it's how it feels to me. It's this thought that I'm in a lot of pain because I recognize that there's a real tension here, right? I think that I should do something. Maybe I think I shouldn't go to the party, but then I go anyway. I think Kant's trying to understand how is it just possible for this puzzle to manifest itself to us. He's not thinking so much about what it feels like in certain cases. Um, and so the kind of framework I set up with the party case, where there's sort of two conflicting imperfect duties, I think this is an important part of the framework that maybe has to be in play for it to be identifiable as a case where moral weakness is going to apply for Kant. Um, but then I think there's various ways for this framework to sort of play itself out for the agent. And so, yeah, I think there is room for one way of realizing this framework to be in the traditional case um, with the sort of the phenomenology or the feels like of, right, I'm torn and I'm pained at being torn. So, you know, we could imagine, yeah, the person is sort of dealing with these conflicting duties, but she just feels a strong desire to go to the party. And she does, and, you know, she gets swept up in things and sort of is overindulging, enjoying the company, you know, sort of just doing what people do at parties. And all the while, sort of at the back of her mind, there's this thought that I'm doing something wrong. 
So I think there is room for that kind of case. But yeah, but I like calling it a dilemma because I think that's important. Yeah, I think the the phenomenon of feeling torn and maybe not just feeling torn, but actually being torn is and it's just like not clear what the right thing to do is. It's probably common to all the examples we discussed. Mm-hmm. So if you, you know, there is a strong reason for you to help the other person who's being attacked. Namely, that person doesn't deserve to get attacked. And there's also a strong reason for you not to. Namely, you don't want to get hurt. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this kind of like being pulled in two directions thing seems to be common across all the cases we've discussed. Yeah, I like that way of thinking about it. And I think it's helpful to remind ourselves of that. Because if you read a lot of philosophy papers on weakness of will, sometimes they'll just talk about a case where, you know, I'm, I have an extra piece of chocolate cake. And I think having that piece of cake is just painted as obviously something that I shouldn't be doing that doesn't have any appeal to me beyond the sort of, like, animal instinct to, like, gorge myself on something sweet. And we're supposed to think, you know, I have no real reason to want to do that. Um, so it really, I think it kind of, yeah, sucks the dilemma out of the situation Um I think it is important to think of weaknesses coming from a sort of, yeah, robust dilemma between um, sort of conflicting principles or duties. I also wonder sometimes whether philosophers really should be in the business of micromanaging our every little eating decision. (laughs) Yes, that's true. Um, Yes, I do think we can take it to extremes. (laughs) So I was just wondering, why it seems like in the case of someone having a weakness of the will part of it is having these sort of conflicting principles or desires being a a play at the same time. So just wondering, what's the role of sort of trying to gain as much experience sort of dealing with the contextual background as much as possible? Is it the case that the more experience we have with sort of having this dilemma of, on the one hand, wanting to go to a party and on the other wanting to stay at home and study for exam would sort of just having that experience repeatedly help one to sort of somehow resolve the situation in one way or the other. Right. I think it's an underexplored part of Kant's philosophy that he thinks, yeah, having general moral principles is not quite enough. I need also to have what he calls a sort of cultivated sense of judgment. Um, You know, I need to be better at sort of reading the situation. I need to have more experience in sort of being able to, in wanting to go to the party, you know, I'm not thinking about this, my sort of duty to socialize, right? I'm not just thinking about the fact that there's like a real moral end in going to spend time with other people. You know, I might really just be motivated to sort of ignore my problems by, you know, going out and distracting myself and drinking too much or something like that. So I think I think it's sort of knowing yourself and knowing what tempts you and being able to differentiate between sort of genuine questions about what's the right thing to do and sort of rationalizations where I'm really just masquerading something as the right thing to do while I'm sort of just trying to do something um, self-interested, something that's only thinking about satisfying various desires. Uh, I think this is the kind of experience that Kant thinks it takes to sort of cultivate good judgment and stand a chance at avoiding weakness. Right. So just wondering if there the possibility of sort of 
rationalizing by sort of adding in more reasons why you should go to the party and not study for exam. While from like an outside perspective, like it might seem clearer that what you should be doing is instead staying at home and study for exam because that's important for your future or something like that. Right. Yeah, I think that is a, a thing to worry about and a thing that cultivating judgment and experience helps me avoid. And I like the way you put it in terms of um, the outside perspective. Someone else's perspective would see that you're just sort of manufacturing reasons where there are none. You know, good reasons to act, reasons that aren't just about me being able to satisfy various desires that I have that don't hold up, you know, to objective or moral scrutiny. I think that is the right way to think about what's going on in cases like this. But I think one thing that's important is, insofar as we're talking about weakness, the weak person is someone who, on Kant's view, right? So he identifies three different sort of levels of moral failure, and weakness is the least severe. And for him, the weak person is someone who genuinely is trying to do the right thing, and they do have a sort of good general framework for what it means to act well. What kinds of things should I be aiming for in living a moral life? And so, I think that rationalizing is possible for such a person, for sure. Like I said, Kant has a broad expansion of weakness. It's not just the case where I I know I'm doing the wrong thing, and so I can't rationalize. I think it could also include cases like this, but it's important that we we don't view such cases as instances of bad faith, where I'm sort of going through these you know ratiocinations so that I can justify to myself um, going to the party. It's not that backhanded. It's not that deceptive. It's You know, I'm genuinely trying, and this seems to me like a reason now because I want to go to the party so badly. But later I'll realize that it wasn't one, right? It won't hold up to further scrutiny, and I'll see that I was acting out of weakness. Isn't it an indication that the weak-willed person grasps the relevant moral rules and facts that they feel guilty when this happens? Right, yeah. As opposed to just being a mustache-twirling villain. Right, exactly, yeah. Um, yeah, they do. That's that's a wonderful way to put the point. Um, you know, I do feel guilt when I realize my failure. And I think that's the important characteristic identified in the classic example, right? I feel pain in the moment because I realize that there's something wrong. And this pain reveals my moral interest in being good. Kant, like, is pretty committed to the fact that we can feel that feeling at lots of different levels of evil, and it just that's what reveals the fact that we're moral beings. It's not that we do the right thing all the time. It's that we feel bad when we don't. And that's what reveals our interest in the good. One thing you often hear people say about these cases is, yeah, 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 I knew what to do, but I was overcome with desire. The desire swamped me and made me do the wrong thing or something like that. You know, I knew I shouldn't have gone to the party, but damn it, I just the pleasure instinct took over and I didn't listen to the inner voice in my head telling me what I really was supposed to do. Do you think that's a helpful way to understand these cases? Um, Right, yeah. Um, I'm glad you brought that up because there are even people who attribute that view to Kant. It obviously sounds very different from the kind of view I've been attributing to him. Um, So, yeah, I think if that's the sort of basic kind of case you know, if we want to sort of self-explain or self-interpret our action in this way, I think there are sort of two sort of philosophical accounts that one could give to unpack it. 
One is to say, yeah, that is just what happened. I was overpowered by desire. Um, so no matter how strong my, my reasons might be, no matter how robust my moral knowledge is, I'm just the type of creature who can always be overpowered by stronger sort of effective desires um, that come to me through my capacity to sense and sort of stand in desirous relations to the world. And then the other way to think about it would be, well, I say that, and it makes sense for me to say that, but all that really reveals is that I am deceiving myself. And in fact, my basic general moral commitments or principles are to do the thing that I profess to not want to do. So this kind of way of interpreting humans would insist that I am not the kind of creature who can just be overtaken by instinct or strong desire. As a rational moral being, everything that I do is sort of um, determined by reasons that I have, by principles that I adopt. And so it just cannot be that I'm overcome and really I'm just lying to myself. And in fact, I have the opposite principle. That's sort of saying, you know, it is okay to throw over other obligations for the pursuit of pleasure, or it is okay to put my own well-being before other people and sort of be a quote-unquote coward in certain situations. Um, right, so this is, these are sort of the two interpretive options we have, and yeah, I don't think that they are helpful ways to think about what goes on when we act weakly. I think as a con- scholar, um, that's absolutely not Kant's view, um, but even just as a human being trying to make sense of weakness, right, because we're all weak. I think, I don't know how many just everyday people well, would want to give that kind of explanation of weakness. I think it's something that philosophers end up saying because other things that they want to accept philosophically sort of constrain them. They back them into a corner and they have to say something like that. But I want to deny that we, we have to end up in that corner. That we can still have a really robust conception of reason and right, the way that you know, our capacity to form principles and act according to them and exhibit good practical judgment influences our lives and directs our lives as rational beings without going into that corner. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like one issue with going that route is, okay, so I guess what I end up saying about the party is, well, no, you know, if I decided to go to the party, then at the end of the day, I thought everything weighed in favor of going to the party. So that's just what I decided. Which is great. Uh, what that buys us is it makes sense. But then what we lose is it doesn't look like weak-willed behavior anymore. It just looks like an ordinary, I decide to go to the party case. Right. Yeah, exactly. And then it can be impossible to explain. Well, not impossible, but we end up having to give a strange, convoluted explanation of where, why do I feel pain about it then? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, in what sense um, am I regretting something or, or what's going on there? Yeah, I think, and I think that's a hard you know, hole to dig yourself out of. Yeah, and then in the second case... Yeah, where I admit, like, I am just overcome by strong desire. I don't want to say that we should deny that, you know, strong desires can surprise us and influence us and sort of exert their pressure on us and influence our behavior as human beings. I think it would be philosophically strange to deny that. But in trying to explain how weakness of will is possible um, or what it looks like in general... I, th- I think that we end our work too early in just focusing on the desire and saying it there, that's what overwhelmed me. I think it's much more important to th- think about my capacity for judgment and my understanding and what might have been lacking there such that 
you know, in being confronted with this strong desire, I ended up doing the bad thing. I ended up acting against my established principles in a way that I came to regret, and that causes me some pain. So I guess one way of thinking of it is it's not, if we're trying to avoid weakness, the thing to do isn't to try to avoid having strong desires. That's just never going to happen, right? That's just the kinds of creatures that we are, that this is always going to be, you know, something that we're at risk for having. Um, You know, the thing to work on is my capacity for judgment and understanding. So I would deny that the two things can be totally disconnected. They definitely influence one another. Yeah, so we've been talking about how these sort of like two readings of the phenomenon of weakness of the will is uh, are sort of unintuitive about like the ways we would normally go about having these sort of dilemmas. So we're just wondering what your view about the situation is on um, what's sort of a more accurate way that we could describe the phenomenon. Yeah, so there's a sense in which we've been talking about it all along. So I would say that the most important thing in explaining weakness for me, um, and I think for Kant, is thinking about where imperfect duties collide and thinking about the sort of dilemma we've been talking about and cultivating the sense of judgment that will allow us to best navigate you know, the application of these principles. Um, and so this is very different from the other two views because um, if you think about the what I call the rationalist view, they're not thinking about the application of principles, they're just thinking about the principles themselves. So do I have good ones or bad ones, right? Am I actually committed to being temperate? Am I actually committed to caring about other people um, and helping them when they're in need? Or am I self-deceived about that and I'm not? Right, my view is saying, no, you know, as a weak person, I still have a good will. I am still committed to these things. I just fail to bear them out sometimes. And that's because I have an imperfect understanding or a sort of uncultivated judgment about how best to apply these principles to particular situations. And then, so that's how I think um, we need to respond to the rationalist view. And then there's the second view, um, which says, I'm just overcome by strong desire. And I think that's probably, to a lot of people, the intuitive way to explain weakness. Um, But for someone who is going to emphasize, but not overemphasize, our capacity to reason and sort of the difference that it makes in our lives as moral creatures, I don't think there's room for thinking about the interaction between reason and desire in that way. So we don't want to deny that we do experience strong desires, Um, But insofar as we're thinking about the sort of the moral relevance of those desires, right, it can't be that it just takes me over and determines me because then I sort of lose all autonomy. It no longer seems to be a morally relevant action. I'm just sort of carried off. Um, So we don't want to think about it that way insofar as we're thinking about the moral context. Um, The way Kant thinks about it is what makes these desires strong and difficult for me to grapple with is not their sheer sort of psychological or mechanical force, but the way they figure in my particular moral, rational framework, right? They're difficult desires for me to reflect upon. And I think we can understand there to be sort of things that are generally difficult for all humans to reflect upon um, because of our like sort of basic needs for self-preservation and to be loved and to be happy. 
But then there can also be sort of specific desires that are difficult for me as an individual to reflect upon, you know, given other ends I have, given my personal history and things like that. But in general, the the idea is going to be, you know, against the strong desire view. I do have strong desires, but to understand why I might act on them anyway, I have to think about, you know, my capacities for reflection and judgment, maybe in some cases my personal experience, in order to understand how they influence my life and how they lead me to sort of apply the moral principles that I'm trying to apply in shaping my life in a bad way. So in other words, it isn't that desire is this like alien force seizing control of you and manipulating you like a marionette or something. Rather, a desire is maybe just like a consideration that's challenging to think about and get right or something. Oh, yes. I really like that way of thinking about it. Yeah. A desire, right, it has a certain kind of efficacy or urgency. It presents something as to be done. And then it's up to me to sort of apply my judgment and think about whether that thing should be done. Right. So, yeah, as you said, it's very much like sort of within the economy of um, reasons. Yeah. So in terms of thinking about a prescriptive way to handle like a dilemma like this, um, what do you think should be the way that we go about doing so? Right. Yeah, I think that's a good question. And it helps sort of bring us down to earth because we've been talking about some pretty like highly theoretical ways of thinking about weakness. And yeah, the prescriptive element is going to be really different depending on how you want to think about it. So um, if you're the rationalist, you know, it's really just a matter of introspecting and trying to sort of like clear away the clouds of self-deception and figuring out what my principles really, really are. And this is actually something that Kant thinks is very difficult, if not impossible, to do. And I think he would worry, and a lot of us would worry, that there's just too much navel-gazing going on there, um, and it's not going to help me be a better person. And then, on the other hand, yeah, the extreme view, I mean, you've accepted that there's no connection between my reasons and my desires, right? So I can gain however much moral knowledge I want. Um, You know, I can really think about things, and but it's never going to make a difference. If I just have that strong desire, I'll have that strong desire. And so managing that desire is going to, it's not going to be a moral enterprise. It's not going to have anything to do with um, with education, with reflection. Um, and so I don't really, I don't know if the, that there is a real prescription for how to live one's life to come out of that view. On my view, there is work to be done, but it needs to be mainly outward looking. It needs to be um, me trying to size up the situation earnestly and thinking about maybe past experiences, thinking about, you know, what kind of weaknesses am I generally susceptible to? How is this situation like another one I encountered in the past? And then, you know, I ended up regretting the way I acted. Um, So it's sort of cultivating judgment in that sense because it takes for granted that I, I am trying to do the right thing. I do have the right principles and it's just a matter of implementing them properly, of reading the particular situation that I'm in properly relative to those principles. Jessica Tizard, thanks so much for joining us. And let me just say that I'm uh, particularly pleased that we settled once and for all that Kant liked to get down and boogie. (laughs) Yes, he certainly did. Thank you. The Elucidations blog has moved. We are now located at elucidations.now.sh. On the blog, you can find our full back catalog of previous episodes. 
And if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out on Twitter at at ElucidationsPod. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.